and welcome to the Hingham Cast. I'm your host, Allie Donnelly. This episode is brought to you by Derby Street Shops. The Hingham Cast is hyper-local. We look at the world through the lens of one small town. My town, here on Boston South Shore. But the issues we explore are unfolding in communities across the country. Like back to school. It's an exciting time of hope and promise, but for some kids, it can also be a time riddled with anxiety. According to the Centers for Disease Control, one in five kids, aged 6 to 17, experience a mental disorder in a given year. Some experts, including our guest today, say it may now be as high as one in four, with an estimated $247 billion spent each year to manage and treat those issues. As we start another school year in a pandemic that just won't quit, I wanted to learn what we can do as families, as a community, to meet kids where they're at and help as best we can. My guest today is Dr. Khadija Booth Watkins. She's a child psychiatrist and associate director for the Clay Center for Young and Healthy Minds at Mass General Hospital. She specializes in anxiety disorders, ADHD, and overall student mental health and suicide prevention. Dr. Booth Watkins, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you today about our kids and what's going on with them. Yeah, so much, right? Give us a sense of the state of child mental health right now. Our kids are facing a mental health crisis. There has been um, alarms rang by the um, Academy of Pediatrics and of child and adolescent psychiatrists and of children's hospitals. And then shortly thereafter, the Surgeon General also put out this warning saying that we are in the middle of a, a mental health crisis for our, for our children and adolescents. Um, they are really struggling. With, we're seeing an increase in depression and anxiety, suicidal thinking, loneliness. And the even scarier part is that much of this started well before the, the COVID-19 global pandemic. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's data all over the place, right? Um, One uh, data point from the CDC said 44% of high school students said they experienced persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, with girls and the LGBTQ plus community reporting the highest levels of poor mental health and suicide attempts. You know, as kids think about going back to school on top of what they've already experienced, you know, from the pandemic, from pre-pandemic, think about bullying, peer pressure, school violence, fears, relationship building, anxiety, you know, what's going on for kids as they think about heading back? So they are, they probably have a lot of thoughts going on. And and many kids are excited to go back and they're looking forward to going back. And then there are kids who are dreading going back. There are kids who actually never liked school. So there, there are some kids who are more vulnerable. They, they struggled with attending school for various reasons, um, whether it's learning issues, whether it's anxiety, whether it's social, social challenges. Um, but, but they're worried about, you know, how they're going to perform. Are they going to be accepted? Are people going to like them? Are they going to be able to make friends? Depending on whether your kid is going from uh, a major transition from elementary to middle or middle to, to, to high school or even from high school to college, really just finding their place and, and, and making sure that they feel um, secure and welcome. They're, they're worried about those things. And there's still many kids still worried about being healthy and, and, and staying healthy and possibly bringing back something to their, to their home. Maybe they have a vulnerable parent or living with a vulnerable grandparent. So there's, there's tons of things swirling around in their heads. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know we're all trying to get back to some level of normalcy in a COVID pandemic world. Um, I know for my own family, my kids sunk deeply into screens and social media as I was trying to to work in the pandemic. And, and that's lasted, even though, you know, we're many of us are back to work, but we're home and back to work. How, how much are we still dealing with those kinds of issues? Part, I think part of it is that we have to help them with their fantasy that everything is going to go back to normal, because I don't know that anyone thinks at this point that things are going to go completely back to the way they were. So I think helping them reconcile that and, and helping them kind of see what things will be preserved and what things uh, are going to be changed probably more indefinitely. Um, and, and also trying to, as we think about things going back to normal in school, how do we begin to normalize some of our routines and our, our structures and our expectations really of, of ourselves and our kids? Because I can agree that working from home with children was not fun. And I have a, have a newfound appreciation for the work that teachers did and do um, because it was a challenge and I have an older child and it was still a challenge um, yeah. because like they see you, but you want to say to them, pretend that I'm not here, but that's really not possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And not a great message for a kid who's struggling. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, the Biden administration recently announced $500 million to expand mental health services in schools. And, you know, that's on, to- on top of what there has already been some fed and um, state money. I know Hingham's hired more counselors system-wide. They have an emotional support dog at the high school. They, you know, they're taking a lot of steps to lean into social and emotional health. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you see the role of schools in helping to shoulder this mental health crisis for kids. It's, I mean, I would think it's a necessity on a level. Yeah, kids spend so much time at school, and so it, it is. It's amazing that it's taken us to get to this point before this has become a priority for schools or, or, and schools are able to be funded to make this a priority because I'm sure schools have wanted to do this. Um, but they do spend so much time at school. They're spending time learning. They're spending time socializing. You know, they're spending time kind of also discovering who they are, what their interests are. And so it makes sense to have mental health support in school. But I think above and beyond that, it'd be really important if we can really begin to talk about mental health and educate about mental health so that we can really break down the stigma that still is so strong as it relates to mental health and treatment for mental health. School is a place where it can really be normalized because this is a place where you go every day. And if we're talking about it on a regular basis, if there are counselors and psychiatrists and other mental health providers present, it becomes more normal and less scary, less taboo. So I think that's a great idea. It really is just going to have to be that it's going to be need to be well thought out. We have to think about what the qualifications of these people are that are going to be in the school. It's going to be super important to have a diversity of, uh, of counselors and therapists of diverse, you know, ethnic and cultural backgrounds so they can kind of reach the kids and meet the kids and connect with the kids where they are. Um, and also kind of thinking about if we bring them into the schools, then what happens in the summer? Because some kids still need therapy and treatment throughout the summer months. Um, and so how do we bridge that gap? So I think it's going to have to be thoughtful, um, planning around this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I feel like um, oftentimes or traditionally, perhaps in the traditional model, a kid's having a 
you know, mental health issue or struggling or anxiety, they're, so to speak, and I don't mean this in a punitive way, but sent down to talk to a, a counselor. Um, are you saying that you're, you would love to see more mental health kind of woven into the school day in, as part of the curriculum? Absolutely. It's part of the, the curriculum, like the, you know, the mental health providers are more like ever present. They might give some classes, they might pop into the gym, you know, doing some observation and doing some real time in the moment teaching and, and, and taking advantage of teachable moments when they see things happen. Um, talking again, talking about mental health and talking about some of the challenges and struggles and making it okay to say, I'm not okay. And can I talk to someone as opposed to having to be sent down to the counselor's office, you, you feel now comfortable advocating for yourself. You're aware that you're having these feelings that are not okay with you. And you're now taking yourself down as a choice, as opposed to you being directed, which it has a different feeling. You know, there's a different, um, there, there's a level of competence that you feel and mastery that you've taken charge of something that is important to you. And that's going to help you. Um, as opposed to being almost feeling, having it feel like a reprimand. Cause sometimes that's what it feels like for kids. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a quick break here to thank our fabulous new sponsor, the Derby Street Shops. We all head to Derby for everything from groceries to clothes to cocktails, but it's also a great spot for activities and events for the whole family. Coming up, they've got a booze and brews family-friendly event at the Untold Brewing Beer Garden, trick-or-treating for the kids, and a yappy hour celebration for the furriest member of your family. Oh, and I almost forgot the best part. Hingham's first Shake Shack in Pottery Barn are opening this fall. So enjoy your Derby days and be sure to check out DerbyStreetShops.com. That's DerbySTShops.com to see what's new and now. Okay, back to our conversation with Dr. Khadija Booth-Watkins and some tips on how to normalize the conversation about mental health and your family. Um, you know, you touched on this earlier for, for a bit, but, uh, you know, you talk about taking control. Control is a tough word, right? Because we're all trying to get control of our lives and our, our headspace. But as families, what can we do to help kids manage what's happening for them or you know, if we struggle to even, you know, you talk about normalizing the conversation, you know, some families are just not comfortable in this arena. So help us as fa as family members or those who care for kids to figure out ways to talk with them, to get at the root of their feelings and to try and support them. I'd love some pointers. So just like, you know, you don't want to be sent down to the principal's office or sent to the counselor's office um, and have these big conversations, we want to try to have conversations on a regular basis in small chunks, you know, finding natural opportunities, whether we're taking a walk, riding in the car, you know, watching something on TV, but really begin to incorporate these conversations into our everyday life and our day-to-day -day routines. That, I think, is where it will begin. And so in that way, you're asking them about how they're doing, what they're feeling, what experiences they've had, and also getting from them, collaborating with them, how can we work together and help you? Um, and it doesn't feel like the talk, like we're not having a big talk because something is wrong or something um, didn't go well. We're having a, a normal talk because in this family, we talk about our feelings, we talk about you know our experiences, and we, we work together to, to make things better. And I think that is going to be key to really any, any of these um, discussions that, that are going to be had as we're trying to help our kids is that it doesn't feel like um, 
it doesn't feel like it's something out of the blue. It doesn't feel like it's something super special, but it feels like this is just what we do. Mm. And so I think normalizing conversations is going to be important. Um, mm. Modeling for them how we talk about feelings and how do we express feelings in the way that we do it and, and also in the way that we respond when other people kind of share with us how they feel. That's that's also like kids are watching us all the time, even when they th- even when we think they're not. Um, and so how we talk about someone who's struggling with depression or anxiety, how we um, jump in to help someone who's struggling, you know, how we, the words we use when we, we talk about how we're feeling is going to be super helpful for them to be able to begin to identify their own feelings and to be able to kind of articulate themselves to other people so that they can advocate for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at our dinner table, we do rose and thorns. So give us a rose of your day, give us a thorn of your day. I wonder if there's a way to try to tailor that to get at more kind of headspace questions. Yeah, I, I love Rose Thorn. I, you know, I, we do, um, you know, the the peak in the pit of your day. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, even with the Rose Thorn, you can talk about um, the bud and the gardener, yeah, like you something you're looking yeah. forward to, someone who's helped you. Um, other things I think that could be helpful is when you're watching something or you see something on TV um, that maybe relates to children and mental health or something that someone is struggling with kind of make it a conversation. Oh, you we're watching a kid being bullied. I wonder, has that ever happened to you in school? Or have you seen anything like mm-hmm. this happen to anybody that you know? Do they talk about bullying? I think just using these everyday kind of experiences and things that we're exposed to, 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 to make a bigger conversation um, can be really helpful because it feels natural. Like we're watching mm-hmm. TV and now we're talking about it. Um, th- those, those, are the, those are some of the things that, that I think make for a really productive um, fruitful discussion. Also, like when we hear about things in the media and on the news, depending on how old your kid is, like you could use some of those examples um, to talk about, you know, when um, Naomi Osaka took some days off because she just didn't feel like she was able to kind of compete and, and also maintain her, her mental health stability. Um, yeah. what, what did you think about that? Have you ever felt like you you needed to take some time off? Like get them talking about how they see the world, how they see how people kind of navigate the world and how it fits into to, to their view and, and what how they see that fitting into what they might want to do or not want to do. Okay. Okay. Um, I'd love to kind of like, pra- that's, it's great advice. I'd love some practical tips. I mean, if somebody came into my house right now, they'd be horrified. You know, my kids are sleeping till noon and then they're getting up and they're, <laughs> you know, they're on Snapchat and every other mm-hmm. horrific social media uh, platform. Um, I'd love some, like, as we, you know, school's a great time for reset. Um, and again, I, you know, I talk about my family a lot. My kids are constantly complaining because I think all things can be fixed with like water, pooping or hydrogen peroxide. But (laughs) (laughs) I'd love some tips about schedules, about screens, physical activity, nutrition, sleep. I I just, you know, kind of some of those basics. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on kind of a, a September reset. All of those things are so important, and, and it's all about doing it in moderation. Depending on how old your kid is, it's really going to be in your best interest and in their best interest doing it together, kind of thinking about what this reset will look like, what this uh, kind of returning to a school schedule looks like, because when they do it with you, they, they're they more likely to buy in and then follow it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it starts with kind of identifying also what things are negotiable and what things are not negotiable. So you might feel like in the summertime, you can have your phone in your room, but when school starts back, you can't, or maybe that's never a, a, a thing that's allowed. Yeah. Um, but identifying in advance, you know, what's negotiable and what's not, and then find the space where you can kind of be flexible. Um, really, 
I like to just kind of think about like let's let's start with getting a a, a close to normal wake and sleep schedule, and then we we, we kind of build the schedule from there. Um, you know what what is our after school time going to look like? So what do we want to do about um, homework time? You know physical activity and being outside is still super important, so that needs to be in the schedule as well. Are you going to have any extracurricular activities? Are you going to be hanging out with friends? So just thinking about all of the things that might happen after school and just begin to think about where they might fall into the schedule. Um, and knowing that we are building the schedule and as we begin to really live it, it's gonna need to be tweaked and being flexible about that as well. But but just being open, going into make, recreating a schedule, being open. Mm. Um, as it relates to screen time, again, I think it's really important for us to model how we kind of put the phones down, put the computers down, put the tablets down and, and engage just one-on-one or, or as a family. Um, it also is really helpful if we're all going to go out and take a hike or we're all going to go out and, um, you know, go for a swim yeah. as opposed to saying you need to go outside and be active. Um, but giving them something to do instead of being on the screens is going to be helpful in that being successful and kind of cutting down the screen time. I don't mm. love the idea of a defined time that's an okay time. It really, to me, boils down to is your child making their social, emotional, and academic goals? Are they engaged? Are they doing well in school? Are they still spending time with friends? Are they still healthy and active? And if they're doing those things and they're still able to have screen time, then you you strike the, the right balance is, is, has been reached. Um, it's when the screens get in the way of those things, the screens get in the way of them being able to go to sleep or wake up in the morning. Um, they prefer to be on their screens than to go to a birthday party or go to a to a game or social event. That's when it becomes a problem. Um, and and I don't know that there's a number that you can put on that. Oh that no, makes- I'm like a screen time jailer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to take a new look at that. That's that's cool. Well, and, and and everyone has a child who's different and who has different needs. And 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 we we know our kids best. And maybe some kids do do better with a with a defined limit. And and you just have to know. And try. Sometimes it's a little bit of trial and error, but I think as a bar, knowing when there's too much because it's getting in the way, and that's what it usually boils back down to. You know what's what's impairing. Yeah, yeah. I I have to take a look at my own like control needs there. I hope my teenager isn't <laughs> listening to this, but I do. Like I, I'm trying to you know control everything, and I gotta I gotta ease up. Um, you know, you talked about Naomi Osaka and um, my kids are constantly talking about like how mean I am and how other parents let their kids take mental health days. And I'm the daughter of a teacher, so I'm super, I'm super strict about school. <laughs> where do you stand on letting kids take a mental health day if they think they need it or well? See, I just, you know, again, like, uh, again, I guess that's the control freak in me. It's like, I worry that if I let them have one, they're going to want 15. And then, then where are we? Yeah, you know, that that is a little bit that's a little bit tricky, I think, to re- also to kind of answer um, in a straightforward way. Yes, it's good. No, it's not. I, the way I think about it is if we set expectations that are reasonable for our kids, then we should we should hold to that and make sure that they are doing what they need to do. Um, if If they're needing to take a mental health day, then we have to take a step back and think about are our expectations reasonable? And as I think about kids, you know, the the expectation that they go to school is reasonable. However, if they're not well, then then that's then that expectation is no longer reasonable. But instead of taking a mental health day, my my focus and approach would be be about would be be looking at how can we get them back to a place where this is a reasonable expectation? Because they 
they they just need to go to school, you know, take showers every now and then, eat and wear clean clothes. So there's not a whole lot of expectations that are just the basic expectations. And if they're not able to meet them in the way that it's set up for them to meet, and we think it's reasonable, then I think we have to think bigger than should they take a mental health day because it's bigger than the mental health day. What's yeah. going on that you can't get to school? Yeah, I think you you touch on a point there about recognizing what you know the difference. Help us understand how to recognize the difference between you know having a bad day or kids being mean or you know the difference between stress or anxiety and and a more significant mental health issue. So the way I think about stress, um, stress is a, is, a, is is can be time limited. Although anxiety is also in general fickle because some things make us anxious and other things don't. So we can be anxious in one setting and not in another. Um, but stress differently typically is, is a lot more short lived. Um, you typically typically can identify like a stressor or a trigger that made you stressed. Um, the, the difference when I think about like in terms of anxiety and, and anxiety disorders is how persistent and pervasive it is, how much it gets in the way. And going back to that word functioning um, and impairment, how much is it getting in the way of your ability to function and, and, and do well? So are you not able to go to school? Are you not able to like engage in group projects? Are you not able to speak out in class? Um, is your anxiety making it that you won't go to the cafeteria? You'd rather sit in the, the, the library by yourself because you don't want to be around other people. Um, is your anxiety giving you such physical complaints that you're constantly feeling sick? When, it's, when it is, has reached the, the, the level that it is kind of persistent um, and that it is impairing to you is when it's more of a disorder and we should think about what, how we can help you um, as opposed to stress. Yeah. Stress yeah. and anxiety, you know, we need coping skills and strategies to manage them. So stress can lead to anxiety for sure. And, and both of those can respond to coping skills and how we, um, in, in terms of us being able to manage it. But, but really, when I think about more of a, a disorder, it's really more pervasive. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, school counselors are in, in short supply nationwide. Um, therapists are, are overbooked. Um, a lot of people paying out of pocket, which can get very expensive. Do you have any kind of advice or tips on how to how to handle getting help for your child when help can be in short supply? We we are in a a, a crisis, you know, a mental health crisis for for our children, and there's a tremendous shortage in the workforce as it relates to to providers who who care for children and adolescents um, and to meet their mental health needs. So it is a challenge, and I hear unfortunately stories of, of families, you know, making you know forty calls and trying to just find one person who will return their call and be available, which has been been a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually refer parents, if they're not already connected to a therapist or a psychiatrist, to to their pediatrician because the pediatrician is typically, or their primary care person, is, is the mm-hmm. gateway to mental health treatment. They okay. might have, uh, you know, um, a network of psychiatrists that they work with or therapists they work with that they can refer you to. Some some pediatricians, depending on where they are, have become quite comfortable in, in treating kids if, if there's a need for um, psychopharm intervention. Um, so the pediatrician would be the first place that I go. There are other resources. So so we at the Clay Center, we have resources online in terms of uh, that can be helpful as it relates to education. So if you really want to know what's going on with your kid, what are you seeing? So what to, you know, what to look for, 
what to do, when you should be worried. So we have a lot of resources on our website. Um, and there are other websites like our website that, that can kind of just give you education and guidance because often it boils down to, I don't know if this is normal or if this is typical or is this something that has you know crossed over into the realm of I should be concerned. And so I think knowing is so important because then if you know, then you can act and react and, and, and support your child. Yeah. Um, the NAMI is, 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 a, is, a, is the as a website, National Alliance for Mental um, Illness, and they have a lot of resources for parents and caregivers as well. Um, NAMI.org. Yes. Um, those are the ones that, that jump out to me um, in terms of if I were thinking about, and, and the, other, the other alternative is to call your insurance provider and, and ask them who do they have listed that sees children and adolescents, whether it's therapists or psychiatrists, and they can give, provide you with a list. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you have to go down the list and call and see who's yeah. available. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I just, I think this is the last question, but I always say that. Um, you know, in addition to whatever our own kids are dealing with, what advice do you have to give to kids or teens who say their their friend is, you know, telling them that they're, you know, having thoughts of self-harm or, you know, self-harming behavior, eating disorder, you know, kids are dealing with so much so fast, it feels like. What advice do you have to them if a friend puts a lot on them and they don't know how to handle it? So I I tell them, like I tell parents, just like they tell us on the airplane, make sure your mask is on before you help someone else. And so make sure that you're okay before you try to help your friend. Make sure you are aware of, of, you know, be be mindful of how what your friend is telling you and sharing with you and what you're being asked to do and how it's affecting you. Because maybe at first it, it was okay and it felt tolerable, but then as time has gone on, it felt more like a burden and too heavy. Um, I really encourage them to, to not agree to keep secrets because you don't want to feel um, bound by, mm-hmm. by keeping a secret and you really feel like your friend is in danger. Yeah. Um, that's that's a tricky place, um, and I and I so I tell them to really try to make sure they have someone else that they are sharing what's been shared with them, so that they don't have to carry it by themselves because that is what makes it feel incredibly heavy, especially you know should things turn uh, take a turn for the worse. And yeah. so those are the the the, the big pieces of advice um, that I that I give to them, and I usually share with them. You know, I have some kids who've done this and they've kept it all to themselves and they really struggled, whereas someone else maybe shared this with their, one of their parents and allow their parents to kind of help them make a decision what, when they needed to pull back, when they need to get someone else involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I validate that it, that it is, it is a tricky, it is a tricky line to walk um, because this is your friend and you don't want to, you know, in their minds, get them in trouble. And we want to make sure that we're doing what's best for them because we care about them. And if you're all, if you're acting in that way in their best interest, it's okay if you talk to someone because you're concerned about them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Khadija Booth-Watkins, I thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I enjoyed having this conversation with you. To learn more about the Clay Center, log on to mghclaycenter.org. And to hear Dr. Booth-Watkins on the Center's podcast, Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple, you can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And switching gears for a moment to community events, the Free Period Ministry is hosting a picnic under the stars at Gray's Landing on September 15th in Norwell. 
Free Period through St. John's Church provides menstruation supplies to people in need, and there are a lot of people in need. It's pretty stunning, but many public assistance programs do not cover tampons and pads. In the U.S., one out of five students does not have access to those products. For less than $3, you can help provide those products and dignity to someone in need for a month. Learn more and buy tickets for the picnic at freeperiodministry.org. That's going to do it for this episode of the Hingham Cast. I'm Allie Donnelly. Talk to you soon.